Hello and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. We're here on Sunday, March 26th. You'll be listening on the 27th by the time this is out. We're here to talk about an extremely busy docket of racing. We've had some classics racing. We had some stage racing in Catalonia. We're going to be doing some Monday morning DSing, even though it is Sunday for us. Uh, It's going to be very exciting. We're so glad you're here. Before we get into all that, I guess we should say who we are. I'm Dane Cash. Cosmo Catalano's here, as always. Cosmo, good to see you. Good to see you too, Dane. Joining us this week, we got Abby Mickey back on the show. Hello. Abby, how are you? I'm back. You know, I'm going to see Ed Sheeran tomorrow. That's exciting. Life is good. That's great. It's like really exciting. Uh, I, I heard that your your live recording went pretty well, by the way. Yeah, for anyone who missed it, we recorded the this week's episode of the Wheel Talk podcast live during the last 27-ish, 30, 30K of Get Web, the Women's Get Web Again with special guest Ellen Van Dyke. Woo. And it was especially special for Ellen Van Dyke because it was her number number one rival off the front, but we'll get to it. Awesome. Uh, and last but not least, joining us for the first time on the PSBRP, Kit Nicholson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, glad to have you. Uh, yeah, we've got lots to talk about. We've got we've got so much racing uh, to talk about with all of the various World Tour events going on right now, uh, at least as we talked about. At least these events are different enough that uh, I'm a little more okay with it. I say we start with the classics. I think that's what, what's going to be on most people's minds after this weekend with the E3 Gent Levelgum double. And we'll take it from there, and then maybe we can bounce on over to the Volta Catalunya. But let's start with E3, the first, the first race. Let's do a little Monday morning DSing of E3. Cosmo, just to set the scene, can you remind the listeners? You know, this was so, so long ago. Can you remind <laughs> the listeners what happened on Friday in a, in a, you know, in a brief what would you call it? A summary, if you will, of, yeah. of uh, how this race might have been uh, taken to victory. It does feel like a really long time ago, having just watched two Gent Webble games this morning. Um, yeah, it was a very, I think, prototypical uh, European classic. There were cobbled climbs. There were attacks over the cobbled climbs that reduced the group. Um, as the race went on, the group was reduced to, was it 12 riders? Um and then the group was reduced again to about uh, three. And uh, we saw two of the people we really expected to see, Wout Van Art, Matthew Vanderpool. And we saw one that I wouldn't say we're surprised to see, but he definitely didn't fit the uh, classics mold in Tade Pogacar, two-time Tour de France winner, uh, general cycling gadfly, it looks like. He tried really hard to get away, knowing that the, two, uh, the other two were substantially larger and stronger than him. Uh, he was unsuccessful. Uh, there was a sprint. Wout Van Aert reminded us that he is, in a, a more classic sprint scenario, faster than Matthew Vanderpool, uh, got the win. Um, and we can go into some of the details from there because there was a little bit of side story around a late service on Van Aert's bike. I assume Pogacar was there on the podium because they didn't want to share a couch with big Philip Ogana again. So they wanted to mix it up a little bit. To be fair, uh, Renat Schott, I'm probably saying that wrong, specifically said that they had a bigger couch for these classics after San Remo. Yeah, which is smart. Uh, it's also a lie. Is it? <laughs> judging, judging, judging on today. I didn't see it. Was there another small couch today? Absolutely. It was, it was the same couch. Oh, man. They just, like, ship it from Italy? <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, let's talk about that trio. Let's talk about how how things kind of set up for that finish uh, and and how this is going to be a theme for what we're going to talk about over the next, I don't know, 20 minutes where we're talking about Gent Webelgum as well. Long-range attacks were really kind of the theme. This was a different one in that this was this was basically the, the three strongest riders in the race uh, jumping up to the break and then leaving everybody behind eventually. But it did, you know, it did kind of come down to this this group of stars putting the rest of the peloton behind them uh, including some teams that you would usually expect to be good, good enough to kind of maybe close down an attack from this far out. Those Sorry, teams weren't there. A specific team you're thinking Yeah, of? we'll get to that. <laughs> but before we do, I think we should talk about Art specifically. This was, yeah, this is all about Art 
honestly, this weekend was a very Yumbo Visma friendly weekend uh, for the men. Wout Van Aert looking great, having that chance to sprint and win. I was, uh, I think this is a big statement for him because all things being equal, a, a regular bunch sprint, you know, he's, he's, we've seen time and again, he's very fast. And you would think in, in those situations, he's faster than Matthew Vanderpool, but we've also seen Vanderpool beat him uh, at the end of a classic race. And I think for him and for his style of racing, I think it's an, an important, uh, I think he needs to be able to win these sprints because uh, that'll put pressure on Vanderpool in the future. Uh, there are big races coming up, obviously, uh, to, to, to have to attack knowing that he maybe can't beat Wout Van Aert. So the fact that Van Aert was able to win that sprint was, uh, I think, just a, a good building block for Van Aert and you know, tactically for the future. Well, that will be something that Vanderpool has to keep in mind. Uh, but he, you know, he he could have maybe received a little bit of penalty. Uh, he didn't. Uh, Wat van Art for yes, as you mentioned, Cosmo, a, a surface that was not completely according to the rules. Do we want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, it was really bizarre. Uh, was it eighteen k? I want to say it was. With, it, no, it was just outside of twenty k. Because uh, I remember thinking it wasn't super close to the line, but a mechanic leaned out the rear window of the Jumbo Visma team car, put his hand on Wat van Art's back, and sprayed dripped i think dripped a little green seemingly super viscous chain lube onto van art's cassette and chain uh and you know it was maybe took 30 seconds um i you can't really say it was a tremendous impact on on how the race went i don't think he got more than a couple seconds rest and and you know, even then, the, the break was really well established, but there was a bit of a kerfluffle about this. Like, maybe, was this cheating? Should this be allowed? It is specifically forbidden in the UCI rules, but also, uh, you know, if something's seriously wrong with a guy's bike that can be fixed by a man leaning out a window or a woman leaning out a window and, and fixing things, uh, I think that's okay. I would rather see that get fixed than for one rider to be arbitrarily out of the event. So it, it was interesting that uh, what I noticed, the the kerfuffle of people being unhappy about this or, or, or just even talking about it, seemed very uh, Twitter-specific. Uh, I, I didn't seem like the broadcast spent that much time on it. Uh, but if you were on Twitter at the time, then it was it was the hot thing for the whole race and after the race was that. <laughs> so it's, just, it's sort of an interesting microcosm of how that works. Uh, and, and, and the fact that if you were to watch the broadcast, I, I feel like they didn't mention that at all after much after it happened, really, it just, it kind of moved on. You used to see it all the time. And for, for in situations where it was obviously BS, where somebody got caught in a crash, you know, 25 K from the end of a tour de France stage. And suddenly something's wrong with their handlebars and like, they need to go up to the side of the car and they get blasted back through the field, which is, I think more clearly an advantage than having your chain lubed. Um, but also, again, I kind of am sort of okay with it because you are kind of making sure arbitrary things don't impact the race. But at, at the same time, I think uh, staying out of crashes is part of bike racing. Um, as unpleasant as that sounds, like I, I think it's good that the UCI has pushed back on this. Uh, it's just, I think there may be a generation of fans that haven't really seen something like this happen. Uh, and that might have been part of what the the bubble was about. I don't know. I feel like there'd have been more Ferrari if there'd been, you know, if, if Van Aert's chain had flown off in the sprint, it'd have been, oh, well, we didn't get to see them compete for the win. We didn't get the equal pegging that you might have wanted. And I think, you know, we've all ridden on roads when it's when the weather's changing, it's wet and it's dry and the chain does dry out. And I remember... It happening to me and just it's the it feels awful and you feel like the, the, it's about to fall apart and that would have been a really really rubbish way to end that you know the three best riders in the race going for the win and they all were there at the very end and if the chain had been an issue that would have been a bigger issue on twitter i would have i would like to think it's just petty otherwise okay so the uci rules on the subject you gotta kind of bounce around in the rules because the uci rules are laid out somewhat confusingly uh, basically, you can't get help from a car, technical help, uh, mechanical help, while moving. That that is no longer something that you're that you're allowed to do. I mean, I, I feel like people do it a fair bit. They do it less than they used to. It's not allowed. 
there's a specific sentence even. The greasing of chains from a mu- moving vehicle shall be forbidden. Uh, on top of the rest of the whole thing, which is that any, any kind of assistance and mechanical check is, is only allowed at the rear of his bunch and when stationary is what the rules say. All right, and then the penalty for doing these things is that the rider is fined uh, money, Swiss francs, and UCI points, and, quote, elimination or disqualification. Uh, and the driver and the sport director also get penalized with fines and exclusion. So, not allowed. Explicitly not allowed. And there is an explicit penalty for what happens, which is the nth time where there's a UCI rule that actually, it's pretty clear. The, the rule is, I mean, it's, it's not allowed. It's simple as that. I think the, the problem is that so many people do it. The UCI doesn't enforce it. And at that point, it's just like, okay, why is it a rule? If you don't enforce it, when it happens blatantly on camera, then maybe it shouldn't be a rule or you need a different penalty. Because I think the, the, I think the UCI doesn't want to enforce this because I don't want to kick the, the winning rider out of the race. But if that's the case, then don't, be, don't have the rule or at least don't have that specific punishment. You know, fine him only. But don't just ignore your rules. I think that's the problem. I feel like this is such a tiny step away from getting bottles from the car. Mm. I mean, when you see, particularly on climbing stages or towards the back of a peloton, or if it's a peloton that's disintegrating and it's the turning into the Gruppetto, you, know, you get the uh, the eight second or whatever it is, sticky bottle, when they are holding onto the car or they're holding onto a uh, gel. It's so close. It's I, this, So there's a, I don't know, I think, is that a gray area or is that, because that, that's still assistance, isn't it? And I mean, I might argue that if the bike isn't working, that's not the rider's problem. But the rider's problem is their nutrition and their drinking. So it's, I don't know, they're they're so, I I feel like one or the other, maybe the issue really is the person hanging out of the car and that's a safety issue. And that's what it makes, that's what makes sense. I think that's a major part of it. Yeah. Is they don't want mechanics hanging out the car doing all the wild things that they do, the very impressive things that they do, which you watch on TV and you say, wow, that's really cool. Uh, I don't think they want them doing that because they don't want them that's know, fair enough. in danger. Uh, and then there is the, 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 like, the sort of aspect of you can get help. You just need to stop. And that is, that's exactly what he didn't do. Uh, and that's why people were, were unhappy with the fact that he just blatantly disregarded the rules and there were no consequences. Uh, again, if, if you're going to have the rule, just... Can you enforce it? Okay. If no, then don't have the rule or change the rule. This is actually a well, like it's, I don't want to say it's well-written, but it's like clear enough. There's so many rules that are not clear. They're horribly written. This is clear this enough. This is incredibly it, clear for a UCI rule. They just this don't, they're, like... they're, yeah, so that's the problem. Um, I, I personally would not have liked to see Wild Van Art be disqualified for this. I would prefer the rule to just be different <laughs> in some way. Uh, so I, I get why they don't want to do it, but also don't have the rule. And, and uh, it's just over and over again. We, we have these conversations. In any case, they didn't do anything. Welfenard is officially your winner. Uh, and he officially sprinted very quickly. That's, I think, the big story is, at the end of the day, it was Welfenard, Matthew Vanderpool, Tadej Pogacar. And Vanard came out on top one week and two days before the Tour of Flanders, which is the big goal for all these riders. Uh, we could talk a little bit more about... Uh, you know, what, what Van Aert was able to achieve two days later in a moment. Uh, but I think we should just point out, at the end of the day, he won this race ahead of these two riders. Big step for him. Uh, meanwhile, where was Quick Step? Uh, uh, we, can come, we can also return to that theme uh, for, for the Gent Levelgum because they weren't really very present there either. I, I don't know. What, what's going on with them? Why, why, why are they suddenly not uh, Classics Powerhouse? It's the opposite of winning breeds winning. Losing breeds losing. Mm. Except Oof. that they are, they. I think they are now uh, top, well, they're definitely top three in the most winning. I'm not going to use that phrase that too Absolutely. many people use. They uh, are you mean still, winningest, I do. Uh, which is a highly useful term that uh, Americans use and for some <laughs> reason the rest of the world doesn't like. I like the word prolific, um, but it's maybe less specific. Anyway, they have been winning as they do um only not in one day races or the big one day races um we should point that that gets a really good point kid because i i've seen a lot of chatter 
the same place actually where where I saw chatter about Lat Van Art's like mechanical assistance. It's called Twitter. Uh, I've seen a lot of chatter about this, how Quickstep is, oh, what's happening to Quickstep? And at the end of the day, yeah, their their classics team, which is what they're known for, has not been great, but they've been sprinting really well. And as we're going to get to in a little bit, Remco Evenepoel is really good. Uh, so they have plenty of things to be happy about this year. It's just maybe the traditional area where they tend to shine, not so much. It just makes me think, I mean, if you look at the a, a bunch of the other teams um, that we maybe don't label with something like Classic Super Team, there's an evolution, isn't there? Um, EF, for instance, they are, I think, top five in that same table. Um, Movistar uh, has suddenly got presence in the classics, um, which they haven't had before, or at least now more than a token capacity. Um, and they were completely anonymous in Spain, which is obviously the first year without Valverde. Um, that's not to say that they didn't have good riders on the team in Spain. But there is this sort of um, fluctuating, you know, we, we, I'm sure Lefebvre would like the team to stay classic super, uh, classics powerhouse, even if they do now have GC prospects. But there is something to be said for, well, it's just a changing of the times, changing of the guard. Um, I mean, if you look at the breakaway from today, Greg Van Avermaet was in there and he won the race in 2017. That was sort of surreal to see to, to me because I just remember the, such a long period where he was... It was it was sort of okay. There's Peter Sagan getting a ridiculous amount of press coverage, but then after that, the the, the kind of busiest press conferences, the ones at least with the most Belgians, obviously because he's Belgian, Van Avermaet. I mean, it was a period where he was just a star, and now now he's getting in the early break, and I can't I trying to wrap my head around that. Uh, as far as the team goes, though, at Quick Step and the evolution, I, I should I mean I kind of want to point out that there's still a lot of riders who aren't that different from when the team was. Dominating. I mean, Casper Askreen was so good for two years. Where is he? Like, wh- and there's other riders as well that the the team hasn't changed that much in the classics, and they're just not performing right now. I don't think it's because the riders on the team have changed or their style of racing has changed. I feel like the style of racing has changed, and all the other teams are better at the new style of racing than Quickstep is. Quickstep, like their boss, is stuck in the olden days and unable to adapt to the new world. Is there a, a, is there a way to sum up that big change that demarcates the old world from the new world? I have, I have similar thoughts, but I don't know if they're the same, and I'm, I'm wondering kind of what your definition might be. I think Quickstep is responsible because they had multiple leaders. You know, you had Bonin, who gave way to uh, Gilbert and Lampert for a while, was one of the, you know, reliable, at least podium finishers. Um, Asgreen, of course. Um, I'm sure I'm missing somebody. Uh, but um, now, but so they started this way of racing with dozens of leaders, it seemed. And now other teams are doing it better. Maybe they've, maybe it's because they've got bigger budgets. I mean, Lefebvre is always going on about how he has a smaller budget than his big rivals. Um, so maybe it's so maybe it's that, and they have everyone knows it. They have been spending more money on the GC quarters because they were good at classics. They had it all set up. But everyone else needed to beat them, and they forgot that that was going to happen. I was I definitely f- I feel that for sure. Um, I was kind of thinking that it was more they don't have really one rider that everyone else is kind of scared about. There are a lot of people, a lot of quick step riders who got to win races and maybe look a little bit better than they were because of a guy like Tom Bonin or Alaphilippe a few years ago when he was, you know, when it was him and Van Aert and Vanderpool up the road that like, I feel like there's that kind of that missing piece where a lot of stuff, you know, Askren, he's a guy who can ride really hard for 200 kilometers. So if he gets in the early break, that's a huge threat that everyone else has to deal with. And now it's sort of like, well, you know, we don't have to worry. Maybe Tim Merlier if it comes to a group sprint, but there isn't an Alaphilippe who's going to leap out of the group after we do all this work bringing back, you know, Askren if he's in the lead break. And Lefebvre said exactly the same thing in his column yesterday, that uh, the team is only as good as its leader, and at the moment they don't have one. And if, I mean, you look at Yama Visma, their leader is Wout van Aert, but they have won four Belgian classics now and with four different riders. I think it's a really good point that you make, Cosmo, with like that one leader, and then everything else kind of comes from that. It does, maybe Wout Van Aert doesn't necessarily have to win the race to kind of uh, 
make that impact as I mean, as we saw on, on Sunday. I guess that means Casper Asgreen just needs to be better because he. I mean, he's the guy. There's really to me that that's that's the obvious one to be the leader right now. He's he's the one that's won the Tour of Flanders. I mean, he's the one who has has done the most uh, recently. And I, I yeah, I don't know what else the answer is for that. I think he might be coming back from injury still. I think he had a really yeah. bad knee injury, um, and they've had stomach bugs in the team. Tim Duclerc missed a couple of races, and he's obviously quite important. Mm-hmm. And Julian Alaphilippe started E3 with a stomach bug, which Lefebvre was not happy about when he found out. Anyway, um, imagine like having a stomach bug, and your boss is mad at you for having a stomach bug. That just doesn't sound. <laughs> that just doesn't sound fun. Uh, On the same day, he was bragging about his lunch. By the way, right? He was. Yeah, that was, <laughs> he was the that best was, part uh, about his E3. I hope he was at a very good restaurant today. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> Movistar, as you pointed out, uh, suddenly getting Classics results with an American, no less, Matteo Jorgensen. That's exciting. Not the only American, by the way, to land in the top five in a Classic this weekend. Very exciting. Uh, we can talk, talk about that in a second. Um, what do we think of that? Is that just kind of picking up the, the scraps that were left from the people who really, really cared about the race and maybe others didn't care as much for fourth and fifth? Or is Matteo Jorgensen actually a guy who can keep this up? Wasn't he in the breakaway at Paris-Roubaix on the really grotty year? And he really enjoyed himself, even though he described it as having spent several hours eating shit. Yes, he was in the breakaway. Uh, he apparently inhaled some animal waste that year, and uh, he's still out there racing classics. He's also very much on form this year. He took a flyer earlier in the race. Uh, bef- right, actually, it may have been the last major attack before uh, Pogacar and Van Aert and Vanderpool really showed their cards. Uh, and it, it reminded me a lot, actually, of Juan Antonio Flecha, just kind of taking that probing early racing attack and trying to get free. And I thought it was cool how he and Movistar really kind of reassembled in the ashes of that escape to to execute a coherent race plan and take fourth. Like, I think there are still people fighting for, you know, 14th in these races, let alone fourth. So I think it's a solid win, solid finish. Speaking of the sort of second-ish placings and beyond, what, what do we think of Pogacar's effort? And what does it mean for Flanders for him? Whereas Wout van Aert was slightly uncomfortable in the climbs, um, Pogacar obviously wasn't. But with you know with E3, there's the long flat run into the finish, and that's the same case at Tour of Flanders, and it's the same case at Milan San Remo. So he's going to have to do something really special really early, and he probably can't do that because he's Pogacar. He's too marked. I think everybody's going to be watching him again. Yeah, and he's going to be marked by riders who are really strong on this terrain. Uh, what about Vanderpool? Uh, were, were we? Uh, we think he's going to do well at Flanders. I mean, because it, I think the question obviously is is Wout van Aert or, or Matthew Vanderpool at Flanders. Those are going to be the two favorites going in, and I still don't really know who I think is more likely to win. But uh, we we definitely got a glimpse of maybe Van Aert the the sort of the game plan. What could be the game plan? Follow follow Matthew. It'll be Wout van Aert, Matt van der Poel, or one of Wout van Aert's teammates. Which I think is is a, a he has the leg up in that department, and and we've seen that over and over again. That Yumbo has the, the the team firepower, and they did a really great job, by the way, building that uh, classic squad back up, because there was a period of several years where they didn't have a lot of uh, depth in their classic squad, and then they just went out and picked up uh, Christophe Laporte and uh, Tish Benoit, and uh, yeah, let's let's get some riders and. And make ourselves a good classics team, and it worked, which doesn't always work. So good for them for doing that. How do we feel about Matthew Vanderpool? I thought he was doing a lot of talking. I thought I thought there was a lot of just like of the conversation that was going on in that lead trio. A lot of it seemed to be between Vanderpool and Pogacar, and I it just seemed like a surprising amount of. I'm sure there wasn't that much energy in terms of calories, but just in terms of like you're doing a bike race, you're trying to figure out how you're going to win in this finale, and you're kind of jawing with people in the break like it, it seems like maybe you're you're not totally dialed into what you need to be dialed into for peak performance um i will say pogacar's some of pogacar's attacks were like pretty pretty punchy there was one where he sort of dove between a curve right after vanderpool did a long pull um and it was i mean it wasn't it was it was definitely bike racing it was fine but it was also like he's definitely trying to win this race he's not attacking for show so he can be like oh well i tried like he he wants to get away and he's 
going to use everything he can find in the absence of these hills. In the absence of hills, curves are the ne- next best option for him. Um, but I, I thought it was just, it was very Pogacar. Guy wants, guy wants to win, guy likes riding bikes. So. I'm not sure it really answers your question, Dane, but on Mathieu van der Poel, um, his, the way that he sprinted for the line uh, on Friday reminded me of when he was up against Binyam Gomay on, I think, stage two. 10 the year last year when he clearly put absolutely everything into it and he couldn't keep going and his head dropped yeah and he conceded yeah. the sprint so he really did go all in um and i'm not so i'm not sure what that means necessarily besides he also wanted it and he wasn't holding anything back but um it was yeah it, it just went to show maybe maybe it, that's that's the answer is that <laughs> Wout van Aert's just really bloody strong at the moment uh, one, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I had a sense of deja vu watching it and I couldn't remember mm-hmm. where it was that I saw Vanderpool do that sort of conceding at the end of a sprint where he just couldn't go anymore. So I'm glad that you've now said that that's what it was. I, I do think it showed both that, yeah, they were both going for it a lot. I mean, this is a race that mattered to them. Uh, so I think we one reason we wanted to talk so much about this race is that both editions of Kent Wimbledon, uh, men's and women's races, were kind of decided from a little ways out the way the victory the first place finish and to a yes. lesser extent the second place finish was kind of the same thing in the men's race but i think that particularly in the women's race the fight for second was incredibly interesting the, and the battle for the chaotic. for the yeah rest of the podium maybe uh but in general these were races that were decided by very long range attacks uh smaller than we saw at e3 it was it was just two or, or one riders uh and they got clear and really there was no bringing them back. So honestly, I don't, I don't really know how much more there is to say uh, about uh, Gent Wivelgen because we've been talking about the firepower of Jumbo Visma already for the podcast. And that's basically what was the deciding factor in this race. Uh, the firepower of Jumbo Visma in this, you know, it was bad weather and, and uh, yeah, Wad van Aert and Christoph Laporte went clear and that was it. Game over. Uh, there's your brief recap of the race. Uh, the, there was no bringing him back, and Christophe Laporte was your winner at the end of the day. Uh, that I guess they decided that's how it was going to go. There was no strife in the final couple hundred meters as a teammate tried to mug the other one at the line or anything. That seemed to be a planned thing. Uh, yeah, the firepower of Yamaha Visma, as we've been talking about, that was the story of Gent Wavelgum. And also, I guess other teams, I don't know, maybe not doing enough. Yeah, I, so I, I love that, like, New World old world distinction you came up with abby i'm just trying to find like something i can hook onto it from a data point of view but it really feels like there's been a vibe shift and kind of like after that vibe shift how do you watch three yumbo riders like go up to the front of the race coming into the Kemmelberg, like the biggest longest climb of the race like notorious and it's just no one challenges there wasn't a it wasn't like it was shoulder to shoulder on that last corner it was really there was a line of Jumbo Visma riders. There was a kind of line of FTJ riders taking a bad line into the corner. I think Stefan Kung maybe crashed or slid out or bumped the barriers, which obviously didn't help the pursuit. But a, a third of the way up the climb, it is a thousand percent evident that like Van Aert is going clear. Laporte is right there. And I think it was Ma- Mads Pedersen just kind of like sort of rode hard, sort of eased off. At one point you had Caleb Ewan, who is a great rider but not the person you expect to be trying to close down a gap to two guys who have gotten away to win races before. It, it, it just seemed like a total, a total brain fart in every other team car in the race. And maybe just everyone was that tired and that cold, but I just, I, I, it, it was so obvious that it was happening and you could see it from the chopper. And I just remember I was in my, I was in the car looking at my phone, like screaming, like, what is going on? Like, Somebody has to be there for that. I think Ineos has had some crashes earlier too, right? Like, um, I think Ghana and I think uh, Kwiatkowski, who's actually really sharp about getting the team org. He's kind of their road captain now. They had both gone down. But it's still, like, they're bright yellow kits in Belgium on a muddy day. Like, there's just no way to miss it. So I was I was a little bit beside myself when that when that whole thing went down. I think what we had already talked about for E3 is a pretty applicable here. If you look at the start list, there is no Matthew Vanderpool in this race, and there's no Pogacar, and that means that of the sort of the powerful big three riders of the classics right now in this moment, that leaves just Wat van Aert, 
in the past, you would have expected Quickstep to be the big team that would step up and try to control the race. And they're just, they're not doing it. And I think without them, without Vanderpool to challenge, everybody else basically, I'm thinking, just says, yeah, okay. <laughs> have fun, because I don't want to be the one trying to chase Watt Van Art because that's not going to happen. Uh, and I, I think it's just, if you look at the start list, it's just without a Vanderpool and apparently without Quickstep being that powerhouse squad, nobody really wants to take up that role. That's not a fun role to try to chase down those moves. And so I, I think it was just sort of a, yeah, no thanks. Uh, I'll let somebody else do it. And then nobody did it. What's ridiculous, though, is you look at the Sudal Quickstep lineup. Yeah. And you've got Tim Melia and Fabio Jakobsen. And you've got the tractor, Tim de Klerk, Florian Seneschal, French champion, Bert van Lerberger, who is always on the front, Casper uh, Asgreen, as we mentioned already, and Yves Lampert, who has had a reasonable week, even if he was the highest finisher at 16th on Friday for the team. That So they really should, you know, a couple of years ago, that would have been... You know, everyone else would have not bothered to show up, hardly. You know, that's what we'd have been saying. Um, but uh, it was just confusing what, what they were doing today. Yes, Tim de Klerk was on the front for a lot of the first half, or at least the first, you know, phases with the breakaway. But then you had a random attack from Fabio Jakobsen, about 85 kilometres out. Tim Merlier and Bert van Lerberger got into the the chase, but still, there was no real cohesion. They were all. It seemed like they were all racing as privateers. I... Yeah, the, I feel like for at least you me- you mentioned Mess Peterson and also um, Fabio Jakobsen. Both of them tried to jump up into that. Well, Mess was successful, but Fabio also tried to jump up into the breakaway that was gone earlier in the race that was maybe a really exciting moment to see two potentially pre-race favorites jump into a break of arguably a lot of... N- people who were not going to win the race on Sunday. Um, but it, it was a huge waste of energy. I, I was watching mess bridge to them and it was really impressive. And I was excited to see him, you know, doing something, but then that energy that he used then could have easily been used to follow that move because he was well positioned to follow that move with wow and Laporte and he didn't have the legs to follow it. And maybe if he hadn't bridged to a breakaway that was definitely going to get caught later in the race, he would have been able to. So that was a really weird moment. I think that maybe put what put Trek Segafredo on the back foot. Um, but also I feel like, yeah, Fabio Jakobsen attempting to bridge and failing was like a really, weird moment for me because I I thought he was riding quite well. So like, why would they have sent him up the road in that situation? Like maybe they saw Mesco and they were like, Oh shit. Mess is jumping into that break. Now we have to go. But I, that was such a weird moment. And I feel like part of the reason that quick step, this might be coming from like a women's racing perspective. Cause I, the men's men's racing is very different. So maybe I'm wrong, but when there's any kind of, lack of camaraderie in a team it can cause a it can wreak havoc on the ability for a team to actually perform teamwork which is how you win a bike race like you can't win a bike race by yourself the only reason that Wout Van Aert would win a bike race is because he has a strong team behind him he can't do it alone and I think Sudal Quickstep is full of strong riders but to me watching Fabio Jakobsen do a suicide move basically was like a signal that this team is not working well together and until they figure out how to work well together and ride for each other it doesn't matter how strong their roster is they are not going to be able to to win a classic and I think that that's part of the reason why like going back in time to what we were talking about earlier um because I couldn't formulate thoughts to say it when we were talking about this (laughs) um I think that the reason that Yabo Visma is so much better than than them is because they ride together as a team. It doesn't they don't care who wins as long as it's a Yabo Visma rider and we saw that today when Wout handed the victory of Gent Wevelgem over to his teammate, which is arguably nuts because Gent Wevelgem is a huge race and for him to like gift the win to his teammate is pretty crazy. Um but that's what teammates do and Sudal Quickstep is not in that mindset. A couple of points to pick up there. I mean, it's very very well worth noting that this was Jakobsen and Melia's first race together, and Jakobsen was a late call-up. So today, 
very odd time to do it, but today was an experiment um, at game, Rebel Game for Sudar Quickstep. Um, I would imagine that Jakobsen won't be called up for Tour of Flanders, and that would be where Merlier might go instead. But um, yeah, it, it, it was an odd time to try and do that. Um, and it was very clear, like you say, I mean, yeah, it was just what, what was happening. Um, and on the the gift, um, and that I can't claim uh, to have come up with this myself, but um, the there's an idea that it was almost a business proposition, um, <laughs> in a way, um, in that Ravanas obviously targeted Tour of Flanders and or Paris-Roubaix. Um, and it's not to say that um, Laporte uh, not winning today would have meant he'd have worked any less hard at Flanders or Roubaix, but if we go back to that winning breeds winning mentality, Laporte is going to be flying really high psychologically and physically. Um, so to have a win under his belt, his first classic win, um, and to have the, the memory of that you know, teamwork that you have uh, towards the finale today, that's only going to be a good thing for Wout van Aert um, in the coming weeks. He's just got to hope he's going to win something. But he wins a lot anyway, so I don't think it's really going to matter. Teams always do better when that when they win together. If you're winning together, I mean, it's a team sport. Have you noticed how Wout van Aert smiles only when he's winning with a teammate? And he comes over the line and he's winning. He's just won a sprint, or he's he's the only one from the group, or he's the only Jumbo-Visum rider in the top three. He does this very powerful sort of arms broad, arms wide rather, um, and this very kind of fixed satisfaction on his face. But when he's with a teammate, like today, at the last kilometer, um, it was very I don't know, sweet? Is that a good word? I don't, not really. But it was, there was this real joy, wasn't there? I mean, the 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 couch photo today was like adorable. <laughs> yeah. Like the two of them on the couch together and Wout was just beaming like ear to ear. It was very different from the Milan yeah. San Remo couch. It's definitely a more pleasant finish to a race to watch than his Yumbo Visma teammate. Primus Roglic, uh, who doesn't really celebrate. We'll get to that in a bit. It's really important to stop your bike computer, though, at the end of a race. So I, I understand. It's so important. Uh, real quick on Quick Step, and then we can move on from this. They used to be the team that was all about winning together, and they did a really good job of it for a few years. They you know, had that whole, they still have the whole marketing push of being the Wolfpack. Uh, and something, uh, however, something has happened where they, they're unable to do it, I guess, right now. And I, something tells me that, like, their boss shouting at how about how bad they are publicly is not going to make that any better. So, oh, I was going to yeah. bring that up, but then I was like, I can't, I don't want to be the one to bring. That oh, up. I'll bring it up. I do yeah. think that it's not I, helping. I don't think it's a constructive yeah. way to to try to uh, marshal your your crew of riders into performing better. But I don't. What do I know? I don't. I don't run that team. Is the whole team haunted by E3 when Ian Stannard stole it from three of them? Well, they've done so well <laughs> since then. Like, they had a period where they, they kind of bounced I know, back, it's right? tenuous, but still, yeah. it's funny. Yeah. All right, we've talked a fair bit about how great Yumbo is, how bad Quickstep is, and what's going to happen next week in Flanders with, with Vanderpool and Pogacar. Let's jump over to the women's side, where another big, long-range attack stuck, won the day. What happened? Abby, can you can you just tell us in you know fifteen seconds of us what happened and also why why was it this long range attack able to go and why why didn't she get brought back? Yeah, there was a lot of crashes uh, throughout the day. The weather was really bad, and um, Marlon Rusa kind of rode away on the penultimate climb, and then she soloed to the finish. She rode over forty k by herself, soloed to the finish. Behind her, the group was pretty uncooperative no one really wanted to work together finally there was a there was a breakaway that went like a second second breakaway but they they actually did end up getting caught by the chasing group from behind and uh megan jastrab my old teammate i'm really proud of that <laughs> rode to second place and uh micah van de Dune of canyon Sriam took third and yeah um marlon russa first world tour win for her i think there's a couple talking points in this race one of them is the crashes because there was a lot of them and that definitely impacted the the chase that impacted who was present for the attack and how the peloton probably would have been feeling at that moment 
and for out, throughout the rest of the race. Um, but also just the sheer power of SC Works and the fact that nobody wants to bring Lorena Weavis to the line would have also uh, impacted the chase because if you're wa- watching the chase behind, there was a couple FDJ riders up there doing a little bit of work. There was four Yumbo Visma riders and they did absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> they just kind of sat close to the front and, um, and yeah, a lot of Canyon Stram riders who also did nothing. And it was, yeah, it, it was not, it was not the kind of racing that I want to see. However, I was really happy to see Rusa win because she has been riding for teammates for, for a year with SC works. Uh, before that she was on a smaller team and she didn't really have many opportunities. And I think that she's just an incredible rider. So it was cool to see her take this win. And I think that the weather really gave the win to a solo breakaway. I was going to comment. It was the, the motivation of a potential Capecchi counterattack that that really got her uh, up the road. Uh, but no, she's she's such a like they were describing it. She's very stealthy. Like that is they were describing her like that on the GCN broadcast, and it's true. Like she never looks like she's going that fast and flies. Do you know if she uses like a shorter, a, a relatively short crank length for her height? Like just this, like it always. She always seems to be ticking over. Just this perfect little cadence that like looks efficient but not fast like she's not hammering the bike like you kind of see in in some solo riders i was a little surprised she got lost or went off course inside the final 5k um not something you see a ton of i can think of a handful of other times it's happened and i mean she did in in the organizers uh, to the organizers credit there was a dude in an orange suit like with his arms spread trying to wave her in the correct direction and she just for whatever reason, didn't see it, but she turned around, got back on the course, immediately asked about time gap. It turned out to be meaning you know, no no race impact in the end. But at the same time, like it is not easy to navigate through these old European cities. Like I could not, I would not put money on myself being able to do it without something like a motorcycle way up the road that I could see. Oh, the motorcycle went that way. I'll go that way. And there didn't seem to be one. Um, and I is that is that a frequent occurrence in women's racing? Is that a frequent occurrence in men's racing? I just haven't noticed. I don't know. It did happen. Speaking of that, Giro d'Italia stage win, it happened on that same day as well, but it worked out for them okay. She said that she was just like totally cooked. <laughs> so she looked she looked really, really uh, calm and collected and steady, but uh, after the race, she said she was so tired, she couldn't even put her clothes on. So <laughs> I think that <laughs> had there even been a motorbike in front of her, she may have still t- gone straight on that road. Um, but yeah, she had so much time that it didn't even matter. I mean, she even made up more time after she took her wrong turn. So yeah, it was fine. I think this race is a great example of something we've talked about multiple times already this year, which is how uh, it, it can be a very uh, awesome proposition as a, as, a, as a good rider to go ride for a team with other really good riders on it. Uh, you often think, well, why would you go somewhere where you're not going to be the only leader? And it's because if you have, you know, a sprinter like SD Works has multiple fast finishers that they can put behind you in these races, then maybe you can attack from 40k out, and nobody's really going to want to chase. And every so often, you're going to get a big win like that. And I think it obviously it helps that Marlon Russo has a big engine. I mean, she she couldn't have just done this just because she had a good team. It's not like she did nothing herself, but it does really help. When the Peloton, yeah, as you were saying, Abby, the Peloton doesn't want to really work together when Lorena Webus is behind. I mean, Lada Capecchi also in the group. It's it's like, what do you what are you supposed to do about that? Uh, and really, there was no one to to really take advantage of it, and she did. She she really uh, flew. It didn't help that Trek Segafredo had um, two riders go down in a really really nasty crash, uh, including Brody Chapman, who fractured her s3 something or other in her in her lower back and has a concussion as well so she's in the hospital and that is is really bad news for trek segafredo's flanders lineup uh lucinda brand went down in that crash as well although she she was able to get back up but that still impacted trek segafredo's numbers because they would have had arguably one of the other favorites in the race uh elisa balsamo who also went down with webus actually um when that other group was going up the road. So there was the crashes were unfortunately a huge impact on the race today. And, and Rusa said in her post-race interview, she didn't actually attack. She just 
kind of upped the pace a little bit and she was hoping that there were riders behind her and then when she got to the top of the climb and she looked behind her and there was nobody there she was like okay well i guess i'll ride <laughs> worked out uh mega Jastrop, yeah. is she is she going to be i mean obviously abby i'm gonna ask you this question i knowing that you're a, a little bit biased uh are we gonna see more of this from her is this the sort of race that she really thrives in specifically what what's what can we what can we expect from her I mean, she did win the the 2019 Junior World Championships in Yorkshire. I believe you should remember the weather that we had <laughs> for that race. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess this weather m- might be like just uh, the best situation for her. I don't know. She's from California, so I'm kind of surprised. Um, but she's an incredible rider. She she was incredible when she was a junior. She's only gotten better since then. You know, she's an Olympian. Um, an Olympic medalist on the track. And so I, I color me 0% surprised to see her take this result, especially after her performance at Depena on Thursday. Um, I don't know if she is a rider that we should look at yet for a race like Tour of Flanders. I think she has a little bit more learning to do, but I'm excited to see how she develops because, um, America needs someone to root for. (laughs) Uh, still just, I mean, she just turned 21 in January, which is wild. So I can only imagine she'll just continue. She's been to get young better. for so long. Yeah, that's, she has. That's she's, a really good sign. <laughs> she's been on the scene. She for a will while. continue to be young for yep. a little while longer as well. <laughs> yeah. Any other talking points? I was just say the Weebus crash seemed completely unnecessary and weird. Um, like really, just kind of decided she needed to be one wheel further up. Went a really risky way to get there and lost her front wheel when the pavement turned into dirt. To dirt. I think she's okay, it sounds like, but I thought it was really reflective of how SD works, even with the drama they had at, at, at Strade, how they operate, because you know, two other riders from the team went down, and immediately they're, like, tending to Weebus on the side of the road, like, making sure she's okay, versus trying to get back in the race. And granted, they were going to win the race, but at the same time, it wasn't, like, Weebus definitely caused that crash, as far as I could tell, anyway, and took out Kopecky, and nobody was, like... There wasn't any coldness. It was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Which I thought was really cool. That was uh, Elena Cicchini that she took out. Um, no. But, but uh, yeah, I think that you're right, that that was kind of an unnecessary move. It was also at a weird point in the race when the Peloton was doing an echelon um, for the sake of doing an echelon because it wasn't an organized echelon exactly. I mean, at that point, they were racing for second, which I don't think anyone wants to see someone racing for second. Um, actually, Kopecky said it best <laughs> that if she was a DS, she would be, she would have been telling her riders to attack or or chase when Rusa got away for in the very beginning because as, mm-hmm. as soon as she gets any time, She's she's gone. I mean, silver medalist at the World Championships behind Ellen and at the Olympics as well. So, yeah, if you're going to let her ride up the road, then the race is over. But but yeah, it, it, when that crash happened, it was such a weird moment in the race where we were watching them do echelons, I think, I don't know, for practice. Practic- <laughs> practicing their echelon. Um, I, was, I was bummed to see the tactics of, of both Yumbo Visma and Canyon SRAM actually, because they had so many riders up in that move. And like, I feel like uh, Ellen said this on wheel talk or something along these lines that like, yeah, maybe you, you bring back Kopecky and then, or you bring back Marlon Rusa and then you have, you, you have to sprint Weebus for the win, but she got away from so far out that if they'd organized a chase and they brought her back, it was still anyone's race to win. So there was that wasn't really an excuse until way later in the race, and even then, like we was crashed. So literally anything can happen. I don't know. I feel like I I walked away from this race and I was happy to see Marlon Russo win, but I was equally disappointed in the rest of the peloton. The weather, I would imagine, makes it less pleasant to to try to chase a doomed cause. Well, I it was mean, freezing cold. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, really cold. I heard that, like, you could barely feel your handlebars. It was so cold. So I think that that does. Because, like, you can't really eat. You forget to drink when it's that cold. So there's a, you get dehydrated really, really, really easily because you're too cold to drink. So I think it was just one of those races. And, yeah, 
This is why I hope Flanders has nice weather. Yep. Uh, all right, let's let's move our conversation to the sunny Mediterranean coast, where Primus Roglic took the overall win uh, today, Sunday, in Barcelona at the Volta Catalunya, ahead of Remco Evenepoel, who finally did beat him in a battle for a stage. Uh, I, I think it's okay that we, we're going to focus mostly on the classics this week, but we should at least talk a little bit about Remco Evenepoel's a really strong rider. And I'm, I'm very excited to see him going up against Roglic at the Giro because we got a great preview of what that's going to look like. It's two really strong riders. Uh, and the Giro is going to have more time trials. And as good as Roglic is at time trials, Evenepoel is really good. So I, I think it's going to be a, a pretty closely matched, I hope, Giro d'Italia between those two riders and maybe some other people. Uh, and this was a great preview of that. Roglic this week at Catalonia, it, it was a close race. And yet, to me, it was... It seemed like he just had it under control. And I think a part of that, uh, we, we talked about this a little before we went on air. Remco Evenepoel, as strong as he is, wasn't making a lot of great tactical decisions, maybe. Uh, kind of wasting energy all the time. Would that be an accurate I don't know, a way, a way of portraying that? Well, it was interesting. As you were saying that, I was just piecing it together in my head and realized that actually, I mean, first of all, it was his. It was Evenepoel's second win of the week this week, so he has actually bested Roglic. But as far as Roglic having it under control, Roglic didn't attack except for on the first stage. He took advantage of Evenepoel. So, yeah, although he did seem to black out on the stage to La Molina, where Evenepoel won by two seconds, um, he didn't have to do very much. He let Evenepoel do all the work. And if you counted up the number of kilometres that Evenepoel spent pulling at the front of the race, he probably had as much as the guy who spent the most kilometres in the breakaway. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot that you, yeah, a lot to be asked of those tactical decisions. And yes, Evenepoel wanted to go and win the thing. Um, and it's a one week race, and he was up against, as he described him, his idol and one of the best races, one of the best racers in the world. Um, whether that's true in 2023. We've got a lot of months to find out. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, because if you look at it on paper, it has swung, the pendulum has swung in favour of one or the other almost on consecutive days. But when you look at the work rate, it's, where, you know, if you, I'm thinking, I don't know. I've been watching a lot of rugby lately, the Six Nations, and you get a lot of graphics when they stop to nurse somebody's injury because they run into each other all the time. Um, so you see a lot of stats, even more than in cycling some of the time. And you get a lot of possession, um, as you do, I'm sure, in any other team sports where there's a ball involved. And if we were to translate that into cycling, uh, Evenepoel had all the possession this week, but Roglic scored most points. It's it's sort of like you don't want to have, in that scenario, they're like, you don't want to be on the front all day. You don't want to be pulling Roglic no, absolutely over not. and over and over and over again, which he seemed to be doing. Um, and... and to me, it, it's it's uh, it's a combination of Roglic really having that style down, dialed this year, because that's exactly what he did two weeks ago at Torino. Uh, and you, you have to think that Evenepoel, I, I imagine going into the Giro, I, I think he's gonna he's gonna race the Giro a little bit differently. I, I to me. That's where all of his, you know, his energies are going to go. I feel like a race like Catalonia, I think maybe he's okay doing that a little bit more, taking chances. I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to be better for the Giro. I think he's going to figure it out by then. I'm not expecting this to be as much of a, a problem for him at the Giro. I get the sense from Roglic that he's like playing 3D chess and everyone else in the race is playing checkers. And occasionally he looks over at the checkerboard and he's like, oh, I guess I have to make a move to win this. And he makes the move. And like, I just, there, you know, he almost seems detached. And maybe part of that is the failure to, you know, like, immediately stops the Garmin kind of deal. Like, he feel, I feel like he hasn't shown anything in terms of, like, going as hard as he can go. And I'm a little bit terrified about what's going to happen when he does. And that could just be, that's how he rides. But, man, he's just looked really good this year. Like, he's not even trying, almost. 
And also, you know, I was talking a lot about the Giro there, but I, I should say that I think he's now won both Torino and Catalonia in pretty impressive fashion. He won three stages at Torino. He won two stages at Catalonia. No matter what happens at the Giro, I, I, I think that alone should be celebrated. And obviously we want to talk about the Giro. Uh, we're all thinking that this is a great build-up to the Giro, sure. But we should also just say, I mean, two two World Tour stage races with, with some talented riders, the world champion in one of them, and and then Torino, he was able to kind of over and over again best people in a similar way, like kind of waiting till the end of the day. Uh, it was In that case, it was Joao Almeida. Uh, but yeah, I think those two stage race wins by themselves, no matter what happens to the Giro, very impressive from Roglic. At the same time, I'm sure Roglic really wants to go win the Giro. I think he he really wants to kind of feel that he's back on top and not have people kind of writing him off as being the guy that was really, really good for a few years. I, I assume he still wants to show that he, that, that gets probably part of the reason why he's so, he's been such a cold-blooded killer in these races. Is he really wants to show that. Uh, and you know what? He probably doesn't really care that we're criticizing him for his lack of celebration because he's winning. I will just, I'd like to offer a bit of defense and I'm quite glad Kaylee's not here because I'm sure we'd go into a full-blown argument about it. But I'm sure they're going to talk does... about that in the placeholders. <laughs> he does celebrate beyond the line and he does look very happy beyond the line. Um, lots of waving and grinning and, um, you know, he's very, he's obviously happy to be winning. Um, and I am confused about why he has to, why can't he trim the thing? Anyway. Um, but one thing that... It's because that... when they stop it, when they stop it immediately after the line, it automatically uploads. So it's not, then they don't have to go on their computer and trim it or anything. There's no extra work. It's yeah, but the doesn't he possible know... thing to do is just stop it and it automatically uploads. Doesn't he know how many editors of cycling websites are out there waiting for the finish line photo and how <laughs> how boring it is when there isn't one of no, he doesn't know and he doesn't care because does the easiest know. thing for him to do to get his <laughs> to get his file uploaded per- properly is just to stop it at the line probably also going straight to the computers of his team analysts and with the zero in the on the horizon that stuff is important and then i don't know i i'm gonna start sounding well I don't know what these things are, but normalized power and average power and max power and uh, all that sort of thing. I don't really care about them, but they all do. And the team bosses at Yamba Visma certainly do. So that's probably got something to do with it. This goes back to my, again, he's in another dimension. If it is easier for him at the end of the race to remember to push the button than it is for him to take three minutes at some point after the race and trim his data. Like if you ask me to do anything after a bike race... I'm like, yeah, I'll get to that. And I completely like nothing, nothing happens. I'm going to like lie down on the ground and be like, I want a banana and a warm Coca-Cola. Like, come on. Um, so just that, I mean, you've got to be pretty cozy with your effort if you have that comfort of mind or that presence of mind. We've also seen him not handle his bike very well when he's trying to take his hands off the handlebars. Um, mm. There was that stage at the Dauphiné last year when he and Vingigo came to the line together and Vingigo looked like he was guiding his son to the line with his hands off the bars because he was so ginger in doing it he was just like oh, I'm not sure I want to take them both off and it was so I want so there might be you know when he's when he's um sprinting to the line to try and win a stage there's maybe a little bit of that there's also as we've seen this week I mean the the winning margin was slim and the maximum margin that Roglic had was 11 seconds and it was during yesterday's stage because Evanipal then stole the second back in the last intermediate sprint so it might have come down to a second um, so to keep going uh, until the, the finish line and not celebrate this doesn't excuse hitting the button but it does excuse <laughs> not sitting up and going yay it's an explanation it, it's, it doesn't mean it's okay but it's an explanation <laughs> yeah. it's a valid enough explanation yeah, yeah. i guess again i i empathize with the people who are writing race reports and looking for photos to put up um yeah so mm-hmm. he doesn't care he, he just doesn't care uh i we we, we kind of you need to kind of kind of end our conversation about Catalan. We've, we've talked a lot of bike racing already on this podcast, but I know, Kit, there was one other thing that you wanted to get to. Maybe the, the placeholders could, could do this. Yeah, later this maybe we can let the placeholders uh, rant about 
Mark Soler being a bit of a numpty um, and in his team role at UAE Team Emirates. I really like that Britishism. You don't really hear that. It's a good word. Numpty is yeah. not a word you hear here, but it's a really good one. Uh, all right, so we've done a fair bit of Monday morning DSing. Uh, we should do a quick mention of, of what's kind of going on in, in the world of cycling outside of these specific races and also what's coming up. So the, the big news thing, I think, over the past 72 hours or so, uh, and we don't have a whole lot of information on this, is that the Spain-based ZAF cycling team apparently doesn't have money, or at least they're not using it to pay their riders, which is not a good thing. Uh, and the latest reports uh, suggest that the bank guarantee may be required. Uh, and again, we, we don't have a whole lot of information on that, but it's it's where things are as of recording time, and it's a pretty big story. Audrey Cordon Rago, uh probably not loving that. Uh, Audrey Cordon Rago, the the double French national champion, left... Trek Segafredo, the one of the most professional women's teams in the Peloton, to join B&B Hotels women's team that was, I think, going to be called Paris 2024 or something along those lines, um, that folded. And then she took most of the riders who were going to be on that team to Zaf. So Audrey, particularly, I think, is feeling um, really upset about the situation over at Zaf. But it, there have been rumors that Audrey confirmed that the team hasn't been paid for three months uh, so far, and that it's possible they might need to to tap into that bank guarantee. Um, this is a team that existed before, but definitely there are some things coming out of the woodwork that are a little bit troubling, in, especially in this day and age when you would have thought that women's cycling, cycling in general had changed for the better. But yeah, the, the team kind of is going they, it looked like they were going through um a shift this year and becoming more of a uci team on a bigger stage they apparently got invited to the tour de france femme avec zwift um so a huge race for a small team that no one has ever heard of before to be invited to and um now already it's what march 26th so we're three months into the season and not a single rider has been paid a dollar. Um, there was like there was some reporting on how where they get their money. It's from a rich family that puts basically puts money into the team because they want the Zaf name to be associated with cycling. Um, but now it it looks like that money is not being used to pay the riders. Zaf name is getting cycling headlines, but probably not the ones they want. It kind of bums me out when the sort of like wealthy person who just wants to throw their money at cycling when that doesn't work out. Cause I want more of those people. I want more wealthy people to throw their money at cycling. So this is a bummer. Do you? Cause it's not a sustainable model at all. Get Olaf the second they change their he? mind, then we're out of a team. Oh, I, oh, I know. And they, they tend not to work out. And yet <laughs> is the other model sustainable that we grab money from insert industry here that maybe we don't love. Uh, you know, I don't really know that there is a sustainable <laughs> model. So I'll just, just I'll take what I can get. Find a country, find a country <laughs> with a national lottery. Well, Say, look at all these other countries. Yeah, lotteries. National lotteries have cycling yeah, teams. That's like the best they can do. It's like lottery is on the is on the better end of what a sponsor could be. <laughs> yeah. When you look at, I don't know. It's not great. Well, it, it looks like the Spanish Cycling Federation is currently investigating the team, so there will definitely be more news coming out later on. But it's a huge bummer for for Audrey, who's an incredible bike racer and has already had some good results this year. The Zaf team has, have already had some good results this year, although I've heard a lot of rumblings about uh, very, very poor managing coming out of the team already. And um, a lot of stories that I do not want to hear in the year 2023 that you'd think that we were still in 2014. Some of the stories that I've been hearing, um, which Hopefully we'll go on the record at some point because we don't want this to happen again. Um, but I believe the TCA is involved, so hopefully that will help. And uh, yeah, we'll de- there, def- there will definitely be more news, I think, in, in the upcoming months. But it's not a good situation. It's not anything you want to see from a team that has such strong riders on it. And I mean, for anybody in the peloton, really. All right, so we'll keep an eye on that, obviously. We'll keep you posted when we have more. 
we have a pretty big race coming up. My favorite race of the year uh, is a week from recording time. And uh, before that, there is Dwarves Dwarf Lantern, which is cool. That's fine. That's fun. Uh, and they then you have the, they put both the Flanderns in the same week. It's not yeah, like that. the Dwarves and then and then the Ronda. The Ronda being the really great one. It's very exciting. And we've been talking a fair bit in this build up to the fact that Vanderpool and Van Art and Pogacar are all looking great. Maybe Quickstep will hear us, or maybe they'll hear hear their boss criticizing them, and they'll come out swinging. Uh, you know, lots of potential winners. Very exciting. Definitely check it out. Uh, men's and women's races. I think it's going to be cool to see if anybody's going to try to take on SD Works. A shame, as Abby said, that, that Trex had some late-breaking injury stuff, which could kind of derail their attempt to challenge SD Works. But in any case, it's going to be good racing. It always is because it's the Tour Flanders. It's, it's an awesome race. So you should tune in. I'm sure the placeholders will have plenty more on that. We'll be seeing you, or you'll be hearing us, in a week. Uh, in the meantime, thanks again for listening. We're always glad to be able to talk to people. Uh, we're always glad that people, for whatever reason, tune in to hear us talk about bike racing. It's still pretty cool to me that, that people like us. We're very grateful for you. Go Obviously, go check out Escape Collective. Go over to escapecollective.cc. Give, give it a look if you haven't looked at, at the website yet. Possibly subscribe. And, you know, tell all your friends to do just the same. Cosmo, great seeing you, as always. We'll see you again in a week. Abby and Kit, thanks for joining us. Pleasure.